Hello, Marvelites! Welcome to This Week in Marvel, episode number 366. I'm Ryan, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Jamie, a.k.a. Agent Inoculated. Yes, and uh, we, we both are. Yeah. Uh, we got our flu shot, so That's we're feeling right. good. And uh, top news is Halloween is mercifully, thankfully, behind us by the time you're listening <laughs> to this episode. That's taken over so much of our content and our news hype. And while I had hoped for a bit of a respite from all that business the holidays are fast approaching and i'm gonna do my best to be super duper excited i Uh, will be excited because i genuinely like them because i am a nerd for holidays well terrific anyway no major big news this week but things are cooking oh they're cooking hashtag secrets our main topic this week is a primer on Emma Frost, and you can listen to Marvel's pull list this week to find out how much me and Tucker love the X-Men Black Emma Frost comic by Leah Williams and Chris Pachalo. And stay tuned here for a few minutes as we go a little bit into Emma Frost and her history and some, some little Frost talk. Hashtag Ooh, Frost talk. I like it. Yeah. Our interview this week is with Cena Grace, writer of Iceman. Cena. He's just delightful. Iceman is fantastic. And next week, there's an issue of Iceman. I believe it's Iceman number three. That is a super cute dating issue. And it turns into a Spider-Man and his amazing friends reunion, which is lovely. And if you are a listener of ours in these United States and over the age of 18, please vote. It's coming up next week. We need you getting out there and making your choices and your voices heard and uh, doing your duty. This is your superpower. You have the ability and the right to vote if you're over 18 and a citizen of this country so go for it do it yes now on to things we're hyped about this week comma including news some neato toy updates dropped this week uh, hasbro revealed some new marvel legends figures coming in 2019 including a beautiful 1991 era beast a union jack an evil grinning loki and more full details can be found on marvel.com and uh, Diamond Select Toys has a line of Marvel Minimates on the way. And these are special because they were actually supposed to be available from Toys R Us. Rest Aww. in peace. And they may not have come out, but Walgreens.com has them up for order. My faves in this wave are Iron Spider and The Spot, who has just the coolest power where it's just holes in him and he can make holes and you transport through them and he's real gnarly and weird anyway check out some rad photography of the figures on marvel.com and big ups to diamond select toys for having released nearly 400 mini mates characters over the last 15 years let's not forget that there's a big comic event going on we are in the midst of it and what is it ryan spider geddon that's right spider geddon is here and coverage has officially begun on marvel.com this week you can see the first profile of the inheritors as well as a rundown of spidey events in comics so we have started we rolled right out of halloween right into spider geddon yeah my favorite inheritor spider geddon right my favorite inheritor is Harpo. He is the best inheritor. He's the one who doesn't talk, right? Right. Another huge deal about Marvel.com that we've been working on for months is our Marvel Cinematic Universe character pages. These have been kind of secretly happening for a long time now. They've been going through a big, long process to look as good as they possibly can to give you everything you've ever wanted to know about every on-screen character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They are up. They are ready for you to come look at. They are beautiful on Marvel.com. They're great looking on mobile. And 
just a lot of work went into them. A lot of teamwork went into them. And everyone in new media is just so proud of them. So go check out the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the entire roster of characters on Marvel.com. Can we put a couple links to some of your favorites in oh, uh, the show notes on the story? Yes. Send, send me yours. And when you guys check it out, get back to us at hashtag this week in Marvel and tell us who your favorites are. I've been here... A long time, 12 years, actually, of the day we're recording this. And I remember when these pages were first starting to come together before I think anyone in this room was here, definitely before anybody in this room. And it's cool to see them actually come to fruition. I remember planning these out a year and a half ago. Feels like forever ago. So kudos. They look terrific. They do. All right. Top books from this week's episode of Marvel's Pull List are Avengers Halloween Special, Vault of Spiders, number one, What If Magic, and Old Man Logan, number 50. Subscribe to Marvel's Pull List wherever you get your podcasts, and you can watch the video version on Marvel.com. Another book that came out this week was our X-Men Black issue featuring Emma Frost, and that brings us to our big talk subject this week, Emma Frost. Oh, the Ice Queen. (laughs) Do they call her that? Nope. They do not. (laughs) Uh, She may have been called that once or twice, but she's... As we'll, we'll learn, she's not as frosty as many think. The X-Men Black issue was written by Leah Williams, art by the legend, I will say it without any hesitation, Chris Bashalo, and it is dope. Yes. Um, you can hear me and Tucker talk about it on Marvel's Pull List. And with that in mind, as well as with Emma having recently shown up in the pages of Iceman, which is written by this week's interview guest, Cena Grace, I figured we'd do a little primer on Emma, who is... Definitely one of the most powerful mutant psychics in the Marvel Universe. She's a major telepath, and for more than 15 years now, she's also had this really neat diamond form, which is a secondary mutation. We'll get to that in a while. So we're going to go into her first appearances in Uncanny X-Men, hitting on all that, that those early Hellfire Club stories. We're going to dig into her role as teacher slash mentor at the Massachusetts Academy, working with both with and kind of against the New Mutants, as well as working with Generation X. We're going to touch on her Iceman connections, and then we'll round out with the last 15 or so years that have really elevated Emma across the pages of New X-Men by Grant Morrison, Astonishing X-Men by Joss Whedon, uh, Avengers vs. X-Men, and a bunch of other comics. Yeah. So Emma Frost, okay, so we don't call her the Ice Queen, but she is kind of the queen of gray areas. See, for me, my first impression of Emma Frost was always like she's... She's a bad guy. I see her tangling with bad guys. She's always been a villain, maybe because that stereotypical ice queen trope. But I also see her teaming up with and having relationships with good guys. So what's her deal? This is what I wanted to find out. So in addition to a few of the comics, including X-Men Black, I dug into her story, and now I know she's definitely not a cut-and-dry villain. And some diehard X-fans will actually bristle at the idea that she's a villain. So I asked a few of the writers we know, including Leah Williams and Seanan McGuire, who actually schooled me a little bit on Emma Frost while we were at Mopop. And to my absolute delight, she had so much to say about Emma, and I asked her for a quote, and she gave me this. She says, Emma Frost is a pragmatist, possibly the only true pragmatist in the teaching staff category of X characters. Charles is an idealist who thinks anything he does is justified because it serves his almighty dream. Magneto is a realist who's seen what happens when the majority is afraid of the minority and believes the solution is arming the minority. Emma doesn't care. 
Emma will be a good guy, a bad guy, a neutral guy, whatever it takes to make sure her students are still standing when the sky stops falling. First and foremost, she's a teacher. She will happily do terrible things if it benefits her students, and that includes trying to take students from other schools or factions if they will either be safer with her or keep her other students safer. And then Shannon said, have you ever seen Into the Woods? Emma is nicely summarized by one of the witch's lines, I'm not good, I'm not nice, I'm just right. That made Emma Frost so much more fascinating for me as a character. So I, I'm on Team Frost, if there was a Team Frost. But that's one of the things that makes me love Marvel even more. Just these characters are so human. They're not really bad guys. They're not really good guys. There's so much gray to talk about with her. So maybe we wouldn't do exactly what she's doing, but at least we can see the logic. And Leah also added that Emma has a brutal heart and is actually radically compassionate. So I love that. Radically compassionate yeah. is very accurate. I want to start digging in um, because when you get to talking about like this gray area and characters who aren't so black and white, we start talking about when... Emma first appeared. So she first appeared in 1980's Uncanny X-Men number 129 by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. And this is right in the midst of one of the greatest runs in comics history. And so at 129, the Dark Phoenix saga was just about to heat up. Uh, it's also the first appearance in this issue of Kitty Pride, which is huge. And for my money, maybe the greatest X-Men. I've had debates about that, and I think a lot of people will ride hard for Kitty. It's got the first appearance of the full Hellfire Club of Sebastian Shaw, Harry Leland and Donald Pierce. Some of them are in cameo. Uh, Sebastian Shaw, major character across X-Men comics. He shows up in the X-Men Black one-shot. He's really cool. He basically absorbs kinetic energy and gets stronger and stronger. So you hit him in the chin with a crowbar, you've just made him incredibly strong. And just think about that over and over and over again. And you can just take it and give it all back to you. He's very dangerous. What if you hit him with a feather? Does that mean that he hits back and he's just like, oh. He'll still get a little bit of power from it. Oh. Yeah, he just, to think of it as like a battery that keeps charging and charging and charging. Oh, so it's like the energy he takes on, not like he doesn't mimic. No, no. He he like, he takes on energy. So like hundreds and thousands of hits with a feather, he will come at you with a battering ram. Sure. Yeah. Ouch. Uh, Harry Leland has this cool power to change the density of something. He does it to Wolverine in this great scene where he just makes Wolverine so heavy he falls through the floor and he's just like, all right, you're done, bye. Anyway, Hellfire Club, super cool. You get to see the Hellfire Knights here and they have those weird sort of, uh, you know, sexy time masks. And, And this is the first time we hear of Emma's Massachusetts Academy. The Massachusetts Academy becomes incredibly important for Emma's story, as we'll find out. So she debuts in the iconic white outfit, which is, it's a lot. Just going to say that her outfits across the years, always a lot while being very little. If you catch my meaning. Uh, <laughs> I understand that. Yes. It was also the 80s. That was a thing. Yeah. And, you know, she's got this, uh, you get to see her telepathic abilities. She takes down Colossus, Storm, and Wolverine all at once. And this is her first appearance. And she's actually going to try to recruit Kitty when you first see her. So it's really neat how she just gets thrust right into things. Um, unfortunately, Emma gets beaten so badly by Phoenix, she kind of goes comatose for a while and doesn't appear in the comics for almost two years. And it's in Uncanny X-Men 151 and 152. We get to see a little of the Massachusetts Academy, which is, again, a huge part of who Emma is. She's a teacher and a caretaker, 
even if she's done some terrible stuff along the way. So thinking about what Leah and what Shannon have said, it's right there from the very beginning. And then we really get to see Emma next, again, dealing with Kitty and the Massachusetts Academy in the pages of New Mutants. Uh, New Mutants being the junior team of the X-Men. They were the younger crew. They were sort of Charles Xavier being like, I want to put more children out there fighting villains and maybe dying. <laughs> they just keep being born. We got to do something with them. Yeah, and got to collect them all. They're my Pokemons. And so <laughs> Emma comes into New Mutants with issue number 15. And with her, she brings a group of young mutants she's training called the Hellions. So she is doing sort of her own thing, creating a team. And I always thought the Hellions were just cool. They were rivals for the new mutant squad and had neat powers. There's a girl who turned into a purple cat called Cat's Eye. She was great. And she was sort of the foil for uh, Wolfsbane, a Scottish girl who turned into a wolf. And if you look at those early pages of New Mutants, it is the most disturbing drawing. It's like a full wolf body and sometimes like a human head. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, I Ooh, love it. No, yeah. I mean, just get, just grow a wolf head. Oh, it's, she does at times too, but sometimes she's sort of in mid. It's great. Uh, Ooh. There's a girl who would make things from her tarot cards come to life in a sense. Can you guess what her name is? Witchcraft? Tarot. Tarot. They oh, went it for it. It seemed too easy. They stuck the landing. Tarot is super cool. And then Thunderbird, I mean, there were a bunch of members, but Thunderbird was a member of the original Hellions. He later becomes a member of X-Force and X-Men and is dope. He's a great character. He's just a big old, super strong, super fast, flying, handsome dude. He's great. I mean, you can't go wrong when you're called the Hellions. Yeah. That's got to be cool. Yeah. If you're not cool Hellions, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> So then we jump a little bit, and I have very distinct memories of Uncanny X-Men number 281. This is a few years after those New Mutants days in 1991, and it is a huge time for Marvel. And there was a new team and a uh, new direction and incredible art by Wills Partacio in Uncanny X-Men. There's this new time travel villain named Trevor Fitzroy. He showed up, and he was controlling Sentinels, and he's going after... A bunch of folks. He took down uh, Donald Pierce and the Reavers. Then he went after Emma Frost at the Hellfire Club, and she's got the Hellions with her. I remember this real clearly. Fitzroy, he has this power to sort of like absorb your energy in order to power these time portals. Like he would grab you by the throat and just suck your life away, and you would just be a husk. And that was how he would power himself up. So he just would be grabbing these these kids, essentially, and just destroying them. He's also using Sentinels, which are mutant-killing robots. Uh, I can close my eyes and still see the panel in which uh, Sentinel's blasting through tarot. And she's like, her cards have just been uh, like tossed out of her hand. She's like, I don't know what, what I could do. What can I use? And she throws up the like Grim Reaper, and it just blasts right through her. It like, got me. Like When I was a kid, I was, I was like 10 years old. It just burned into my brain. The trauma of all this is so bad that Emma goes into her mind in order to deal with losing her students. She gets knocked down and knocked out and she just sort of like collapses in on herself. But all of this is key because for a few years, Emma's just off the board. She's in a coma and they're trying to treat her at the Xavier School. They're like, we're not going to leave her here. They know that she's not all bad. She's trying to help kids, help young mutants. So they want to do something for her. They have to help her. She has gray areas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so that was 281. 
That brings us to Uncanny X-Men 311, two and a half years later. It's Sabretooth loose in the mansion. There's a power surge slash blowout. There's chaos and calamity and, and potential death. Bishop is hunting Sabretooth. It's really gnarly. It's really fun. But it has Iceman doing some work in the room where Emma is convalescing, right? They both get jolted by this energy wave. And it's like, zaps them together. And over the course of the next few issues, we find out that Emma's mind has gone into Iceman's body. And she's doing things with his powers that he never knew he could do. She's like, basically like, oh, this body is interesting. Spikes everywhere. Oh, I can turn this entire lake frozen in an instant. I can do this. I can travel through water and come out three miles away in one minute. Like, and the X-Men are like, what is happening? This is nuts. So then in Uncanny X-Men 314, Emma breaks out of the school in Bobby's ice form because she wants to go find the Hellions. The last thing she remembers is her students being under siege and her blacking out, right? There's this heartbreaking sequence where she gets to Frost Enterprises because her family is well-to-do, you know, old money, big companies. She logs into the computers to locate her students. She finds out they're all dead. And it's like, think of these people you have done everything in your power to protect and teach, and you find out they're all dead. She gets the details and she, she thanks that she wasn't there to hear their thoughts at the moments of their deaths because that would have just fully broken her. But she's as Iceman and she just slumps down. She's done. She actually, uh, she's approached by security team there. They have their guns drawn and she's like, do it. Just do it. And she's given up. But she's helped out by Professor X who's like, you can't do this. Like the, there was nothing you could do. It's not your fault. Come with us. Let us help you. Banshee is there, and he's like, he like picks her because she just she can't move. She's done. He picks up Iceman, and they leave. Do they know she's Emma Frost? Yes, they okay. know that they all. Yes, they all know this at that time. And so it's just this brutal issue. At the same time that all this is going on, right? This is X Men. A techno-organic alien race called the Phalanx was infiltrating the X Men, attacking mutants. They can basically absorb people and kind of look like them, but they can't hold like the human visage for so long. They have these really cool looks to them. So they're attacking all this stuff. Emma gets her body back just as the Phalanx attack. And this goes into the Phalanx Covenant crossover. Big crossover event across all the X-Men books. The Phalanx crossover ends. Uh, Emma and Banshee teach these new students at the Massachusetts Academy. And the team becomes Generation X. Really great stuff in that series. Chris Pachalo's art style just influenced the hell out of so many comic book creators. I remember in one of the retreats, Scotty Young was talking about, they were just talking about that book And he was like, Chris was dunking on every other artist at the time. He was running circles around them, doing things with the pages and the margins. Read those issues on Marvel Unlimited. They're incredible. Chris came back to draw the X-Men Black issue this week, so it's really neat that it all comes full circle. June 2001, Generation X ends with issue number 75. The Massachusetts Academy closes. Emma goes to Genosha. Genosha has this really interesting history of using mutants as slaves, just being terrible to mutants. It says island nation had been liberated. Mutants took control and it became this flourishing place where mutants could almost, it's almost a utopia. And she starts teaching there. Millions of mutants on this island at this point. July 2001, one month after the mansion closes, we see her teaching or so. 
New X-Men 114 by Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely is released, and it completely changes the landscape of X-Men comics kind of forever. It is one of the greatest runs of comics, in my opinion. In that first issue, Cassandra Nova is introduced. The X-Men get new looks. They get the sort of the leather jackets, and they look all sexy and cool and badass. There's a new type of sentinel that is created, and the idea of a secondary mutation comes forth. Ooh. And this is the first time that's established. The next issue, number 115 of New X-Men, we see the extinction of over 16 million mutants on Genosha. This happens because Cassandra Nova has taken a sentinel plant and created, think of the Empire State Building, and like four of them together with insect legs and faces and weapons, and, and it flies to Genosha and destroys all of it. And you have this horrifying moment where Charles Xavier is monitoring and something's happening and you just watch the number of mutants shrinking on that island. It is heartbreaking. But the X-Men go to Genosha to see what they can do. Emma's found one of the only survivors on Genosha and she's cradling the body of a dead mutant. She's now in this diamond form. She comes out of the rubble holding a mutant and she's like, help her. Uh, it was actually a Negasonic Teenage Warhead sort of a different iteration of that character. But she's like, help her. And the paramedics are like, she's dead. And she just, it's like not registering. But this is Emma's secondary mutation. This is the first time we see it. In her diamond form, she says, quote, I saw children cut into wafer-thin slices. I watched a gifted 10-year-old pianist search for his hands among the broken glass. That monster must die. She then ends up twisting Cassandra Nova's neck around and joining the X-Men. Good for her. Yeah. She gets a modicum of revenge, and she is fabulous when she does it. She looks awesome. She's so cool. Um, And we also introduced in the pages of New X-Men to the psychic slash love affair between Emma and Cyclops, which is a big part of what her story has been last couple years. And she becomes a core member of the X-Men and a major teacher at the school. So, you know, she comes from a rival to being a core X-Men over the course of a number of years. New X-Men number 139 is a very key Emma issue. It's Jean, and she's got the Phoenix Force. Jean confronts Emma about the affair, because at this point, Jean and Cyclops, they're married, and their marriage is not going well. They won't, they haven't, I think there's a, there's a discussion of they haven't touched each other in like six months. To be fair, Cyclops had just come back from being possessed by Apocalypse, so he was a little off. A little touchy. Yeah. A little touchy. Um, But after this, the universe was destroyed and returned again in the pages of Secret Wars. Out of this, we get into the story uh, where Emma's traumatized by the death of Scott Summers. Scott dies because of Terrigen poisoning. There's this big storyline. There's a Terrigen cloud thing that creates all the Inhumans, and so it is actually poison to mutants. Scott... He is on the front lines of trying to figure things out and save things. What we find out is he died almost right away. But Emma projected him being alive into everyone's minds as a way of forcing the Inhumans versus X-Men war. She was grieving and unstable and pissed off at Everyone, especially the Inhumans who had killed the person she loved, in, sort of inadvertently, but still killed him, and she was lashing out. There's been some other things. That was a, just a couple of years ago. There's, you know, basically we're more or less 
at this point where we are in X-Men Black, Emma Frost, then we see why the X-Men are so reluctant to work with her in this issue because she's just messed with people's heads and they want to trust her because they know at her core she can be good, she can do good, she has good intentions, but she has very dangerous methods. Uh, and so she comes to the X-Men in this X-Men Black issue. And from there, if you want to know what happens, and it's really awesome, especially by the end of the issue, you'll have to read the book. So Emma Frost, one of the coolest. This is the impression I get whenever I read Emma, is that she seems like she is very in control of herself and knows what kind of destruction she can cause, but uses it very economically. Like uh, Leah and Sean said, she'll do whatever she needs to do in order to do what she believes is right. Yeah. And if you get in her way, TFB. All bets off. Yeah. Our interview this week is with Cena Grace, writer of Iceman. He's a delight. Iceman, super fun this volume, hitting uh, really like the nostalgia aspects of Spider-Man and Firestar, that Spider-Man is Amazing Friends stuff that you'll see next issue, having Bobby being open and out and dating, which is awesome. Love uh, it. Yeah. And of course, tackling some big personal issues like uh, all the Emma Frost stuff that we saw in, I believe it was issue two. I love the art style that Nathan Stockman has for it. And I think he and, and Cena work really well together. And hilarious jokes. <laughs> Such dad jokes. Such it's, dad jokes. They... I, I get almost more enjoyment of thinking about Cena writing yeah. the dad jokes than even the dad jokes themselves. It makes me very happy. Cena's one of my favorite people in the world, I think. But yeah, picturing him coming up with these kind of adds a very wonderful layer. Heck yeah. All right. Now on to our interview with Cena Grace. Hey, hi. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. Last time we talked <laughs> to you for this week of Marvel, it was over Skype, and we got to see your cat, which made me very happy. Yes. Can we have a cat update? She had a really dry summer because it's been a really warm summer in Los Angeles. Um, so the AC has been on blast in my apartment, and she was a little uncomfortable, but we figured it out. I got her two new water bowls. One is just normal, and then the other one is like a flowing water bowl. She has not taken to it, and I'm really mad. Because, oh, no. like, you know how you can't force many creatures to do anything? But, like, cats specifically, you can't lead them to the water. Like, they really just have to find it on their own. And I'm just mad because I'm like, come on. <laughs> You're going to love this thing if you just realize all you have to do is bat at it, you know? And But, yeah, she's good. She says hi. Good. She's sorry oh, she can't good. be here. Um, and how about the dog? Because we saw the dog, too. So good. My dog, Henry. I miss him so much. It's so hard. <laughs> I like there was a, such a difference in how you talked about either animal. Oh. <laughs> it's because dogs are better. <laughs> I like. I love my cat, but she's like 14. She's kind of a jerk. Like most cats. Yeah, like I don't have a Which... good cat. Like I have like a cat cat. But I accept her. I take her for who she is, her journey. I'm so there for that. But like I'm also like, oh, my God. Henry, on the other hand, oh, my baby. But he's good. Everyone's good. They're so happy that I'm writing Iceman. They can see the change. Maybe because I'm giving them better food, too. Mm -hmm. I'm like, we got mm -hmm. that Marvel money this week, Henny. Uh, <laughs> but I want to talk about Iceman. Yeah. That's, that's, that's why we're here. Oh, yeah. Okay, fine. Uh, fine, fine. I, uh, can you give us five reasons to read Iceman? For someone who's not read your other Iceman work, who doesn't know Bobby very well. Like, okay. five reasons for someone to come in cold to Iceman. Oh, Ryan. 
That was that was so chill of you to do that. Oh, uh, ice pun here. Reason number one: it's pretty funny. It, it's actually, I think, funnier than the first round because Bobby's a lot more confident, so his jokes I think are gonna land better. Reason number two: Nathan Stockman art. He is so good. He is such a capable storyteller. He really pushes the humor. Nate and I seem to have a, you know, like Gene and Cyclops rapport that I vibe with. Reason number three, cool new characters. We are going to get to meet a rad new Morlock or two in issue one. And I'm so excited for readers to sort of discover them and see this sort of area of mutant kind that we don't always get to look at. Reason number four. Really chill supporting cast. You did it. You did it. I get to use Bishop in issue one, Emma Frost in issue two, Jubilee. She has a really cute moment in issue one. I used Jubilee for like two panels and I had this really dense, weird joke. And all he was trying to do was talk about how she had like a stink face on her when he walked (laughs) by her. What's got two eyes, compulsively chews gum, and looks the opposite of her jubilation namesake? Ya face. (laughs) (laughs) And so then in the next panel, she holds up a dad joke jar, which is a callback to the first series, because, like, they say he needs one of those. And she's like, I knew I'd need this. But then on the dad joke jar label, above it, the word clunky is handwritten on it. It's all me making fun of myself. Yeah, it's funny, cool characters, cool supporting cast. Fifth reason, there's going to be some heavy like character work, too. I think anyone who is interested in exploring kind of why people do what they do, good or bad, Iceman's an awesome series for that. It's a character study, first and foremost. Like, character work comes above, quote-unquote, plot. But this one has a lot of good plot, too. We have Mr. Sinister really effing some S up. Everything has been, like fitting and clicking in a way that I haven't experienced in quite a long time. So I am thrilled. I always find um, during the writing process when things do start to click, because these stories can take on a mind of their own. Mm -hmm. They really start telling themselves. And then it's up to you as the writer to sort of be like a wizard trying to control the situation. And then when it happens, that must feel really satisfying. Yeah. I wish I had the words for it because it would make me a more captivating person to be here today. But there's something about it. You know, we have uh, one of the original series editors back on, Darren Shan. He recognized what worked and what didn't work on the first run. And it's so great to have him around to kind of guide me and challenge me as a storyteller in a way that I I can vibe with and believe and, and know that, it, you know, no one's coming from ego. We're all coming from, I just want to tell the best story I can tell with this character and he knows that and he also has his opinions about what's the best story to tell for Bobby Drake and it's so cool to have our perspectives coalesce like I was about to say collide but like we don't we don't clash we don't collide we're like coalescing I'm so happy and Bobby's in a really better place as a character but he's still got so much to learn and I think now that he is a little more settled we don't have to tell these stories that are sort of intrinsically full of sadness. I just don't want him to be sad anymore. Now he's going to live his, you know, gosh darn life. And it should show. I I think people will see that within the first few pages. It sounds like he was kind of circling when he was in that darker 
place and struggling with himself. And now he can finally move forward. Yeah. So where is he going to go? You'll see. He's going to stay in New York. I'm not going to make him move to L.A. for a guy again. Good, Bobby. He's getting smart. At the end of the first series and in X-Men Gold, everyone was sort of thinking, this man is super powerful. Bobby's like, I'm super powerful. And the thought was like, should he be leading a team? Is that where his skills lie? Because he's so compassionate and he cares so much about people. But we kind of decided, you know what? That's not where he's at his best. And I don't want to spoil too much, but this series is going to sort of show you where Bobby is at his best in terms of being a figure for others, being a superhero and not being a sidekick and not being on the sidelines and not being all the way in the back of a team shot ice sled, you know, with, and then making the ice X behind the whole crew. He's got a lot to do back there. I've always wondered about the physics of the ice sled. It's always been like in, in like some media, it would disappear behind him. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And then some of it would just like it'd be there. And it's like, well, if it's going for like 200 feet at some point, it's just going to go tip over. But I, you know. Yeah, I always wonder about that, too. And I joked about it in issue two of the first series where he's like, why did I study accounting and not physics? Because he had to land a plane <laughs> with his ice sled powers and Nate he's been drawing it to where like it sort of crystallizes right where his like hand blast is meeting the edge of it and that looks really cool and I guess to me I'd assume like it's just a very thin sheen of a sled that would melt really fast Mm -hmm. but is just substantial enough to kind of like carry him I don't know I don't really know how it works either it's not my job to know no it's not it's just (laughs) you know like write it and make it make it fun we should have a scientist on this show well there is a science of I think it's the science of X-Men book did you ever read that no and now I want to I didn't read it but my high school best friend did and he told me what the book had to say and at the end of the day it's sci-fi. It's yeah. Good. Suspend your disbelief and just go with Just accept it. Yeah. And the biggest thing that I think Marvel has sort of explicitly said is that he draws his power from, like, the moisture in the air. He um, should never go to a desert. Just a bunch of cacti would, like, explode because he'd be drawing from their, like, reservoirs. Those poor little guys. Oh. <laughs> they would just borderline shrivel. But succulents are super resilient. Yeah. Oh, okay. Everyone will be fine. No drama, people. No drama. One of the things that I wanted to talk about, which I found interesting, is the way you come into making comics, the way a lot of people come into making comics. So you think of like a guy like Charles Soule. He's a lawyer as well. Matt Rosenberg, he booked shows and released you know, records and stuff like that. And you have not just as a writer, you have experience as an artist. You have mm-hmm. experience on the editorial side. What are sort of like the best, worst things about writing or the best, worst things about Drawing, like, you know, I find it interesting that someone is so multidisciplined in making comics. I taught myself everything to make sure I could know how long things take so I could manage other people's time (laughs) around me. And then similarly, like, they were like, you're annoying our production people turning in your files so late. And I was like, cool. I taught myself in design. (laughs) I just, like, I learned how to buy myself another day. I'm giving you the whole book package. You just have to slap the, you know, copyright logos and indicia. Boom. Book done. Like, I don't like to inconvenience people. But we are creating art on a deadline. And you have to be honest with yourself that sometimes you don't get hit 
with the inspiration bug when you need to and you have to turn a script in and you don't want to be a hassle for anybody. Um, so with writing, the thing I love about it is that it can be done anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I super appreciate that I can just use Google Docs on my phone if I get an idea on my laptop and it's all on the same master document. Where you know, And that's the problem with drawing is like, You've got to be in your zone. You've got to be in your seat. You've got to be in a groove. You can't be looking at your phone. You can't be, like, doing a million things. You really just have to create that space. And that's the best thing about drawing is when you're doing it, it feels so rad. Mm -hmm. When you know you're kind of, like, in the space and you're drawing the, like, peak version of what you think you're capable of as an illustrator. So that's the, yeah, that's the cool thing about drawing and the cool thing about writing. I'm trying to think of what the challenges are. The thing, nothing sucks more when you're writing than truly being blocked and truly like not even knowing how to describe a panel because you're just so not there. But the nice thing is with drawing too, like you can kind of just work around when you can't create art. With drawing, it's like, okay, I'll just draw all the panel borders. I'll set up all the reference. You know, you just buy yourself time. Same with, like, uh, you know, writing a page. It's like, for the next hour, I'll just write page one, this many (laughs) panels, page break, page two. You know, just keep yourself busy and keeping yourself just in the act of, like, typing on a keyboard until you can finally get the line of dialogue out of your head. That's the one problem, yeah, is, like, sometimes you don't know when the dialogue is right or when you hit it. It comes so much from, like, an instinct place And it's so hard to explain that to other people sometimes. Like one time I had to turn in a script for Iceman. It was last Comic-Con. And I was like two days later than I said I would have been. And again, no one was waiting on me. Like the artists were fed. But I was not meeting my, my deadline for myself and my editor. And after I turned it in, I was like, hey, man, I couldn't tell you this at the time. But... I was really stuck on the script and I just kind of felt I would know the way to go and I would know the path once the new Lana Del Rey album came out. (laughs) But I couldn't say that to you because you'd think I'm a crazy person and now you have the script. And he was like, I'm really glad you didn't tell me that. (laughs) That is bad. And I was like, I knew that that album was going to speak to something in that issue because it was uh, around when Bobby was going to L.A., And that arc spoke so much to this character who wanted something from this world and didn't know how to get it and had this relationship with Los Angeles. And I was totally right. But you can't tell an editor that, that like, hey, I I just was waiting for the inspiration bug to hit. That's so much pressure on Lana Del Rey. I know. Yeah. And especially because it's like it's also it's like it's Lana Del Rey. Like, you know, what is she going to say? But there was something and that album is actually kind of good. It's Lust for Life. And. It is a lot about just you wanting to be present and wanting to be a part of your own life. And how do you do that? And how do you engage with the world and all that jazz? But it worked out. Well, I think writing takes place so much inside your own head that sometimes when you get stuck, you need someone else to converse with. And in this case, it was hearing Lana Del Rey sort of say (laughs) the same things, but from another perspective. And I know that when... I write sometimes, I think I'm going a little nuts because it's like, am I the only one who thinks this? And sometimes you just need to be reassured that no, there are other people who can relate to what you're doing. So Yeah. However your art is being mass distributed, you kind of need to feel confident that what you're saying is speaking to what's on people's minds. 
And that's been also a huge kind of challenge with this current Iceman arc. We're in a super fascinating chapter of history and what Bobby is dealing with and going through and what mutants are dealing with and going through is really speaking to what a lot of minorities and people facing prejudice are dealing with right now. And what do you do when you have it a little bit better than the people behind you? And how do you take it upon yourself to be there for them? And that's what I've been exploring thematically in the arc. And that's something that Bobby is going to be learning a lot of, especially with the Morlocks, because they sort of represent the stuff that you don't immediately embrace. You know, like the mutants are kind of like, well, they like being in the sewers. And the Morlocks are like, Likes a strong word. Like, I, the Morlocks have always fascinated me because they have such a connection to the X-Men in so many ways. Why are they not just coming together like, hey, can we just get like a second building, just like <laughs> a dorm, something to go along that we could just hang out in, but they have their pride and there's all kinds of different things that go along with it. I've always been fascinated by the Morlock-X-Men relationship and, and like why they choose to live the way they live and and how they coexist with each other. Yeah, and I think I'm going to speak a lot to that. There, You know, because it is both ways. Like, I think the Morlocks do have a keep it attitude. Like, why wouldn't the Morlocks want to go into the mansion? And, and there is sort of a conversation between Bobby and a new character about that. And that's the other thing, too, is not everyone is going to have, like, Callisto's, like, point of view on this so I'm personally happy with how all of that is being explored because I feel confident that I found a dynamic way to really bring up like what's going on what's going on (laughs) nothing's right I love your art and I really love your sketch blog your tumblr Uh, I wish you updated it more Uh, but (laughs) I just assume no one looks at it so I just I live on Instagram but how much drawing do you actually get to do these days I try to do a couple hours a day If I need to be writing all day, then that's what's going to happen. But I'm super, I get like really uncomfortable in my own skin. Like I'm just like, why am I in a weird mood? And it's like, oh, it's because I haven't drawn. And I've had to work digitally lately to like meet deadlines and stuff. Now I have to like make time to draw on paper. Because even if I don't draw on paper, suddenly I feel weird. Mm. Because my wrist can't do on an iPad what it can do with a mechanical pencil and like a sheet of Strathmore paper. It feels more organic and from like it's coming from you when it's on paper. Yeah. I know I feel that way about writing in a notebook. I feel like if I'm not writing in a notebook, it's not real writing. I have three notebooks in my bag right now. I have like a sketchbook, line paper notebook, different size sketchbook. I just want to make sure that no matter when I get hit with an idea that I'm able to like process it and put it on the applicable piece of paper or tool or platform or yada yada. I feel you there. There's something about tactile feeling. And that's why I'm such a big fan of like even print comics and floppy comics. I do love digital, but like I do also advocate for the hard copy because nothing beats the smell Mm -hmm. and the feeling, you know, like the paper quality and like, see, I'm making my Henry face again. I'm like, (laughs) like, I do really like comic books. I love opening an old comic and just smelling it. Ugh, yeah. It's like a newspaper. You gotta wash your hands after. Yeah, I always get that schmear like right here. Oh, the yeah? Newsprint schmear. Yeah, and I hate it and love it. Really quick, because you're an artist, what are your scripts like? Do you give a lot of art direction? Do you leave that to your different artists? Is it different from person to person you work with? So, I, I always say this. I lay the book out. Like, I draw how the panels will break down and everything. I have art brain, so I like try to look at the storytelling. I do not show the artist that. 
And I usually just try to keep it pretty like, this is what I was thinking. If you have a better idea, go for it. Because I don't have a lot of experience in like action storytelling. I've done maybe like two to 300 pages of action, but otherwise I do like character stuff. So it's like, if you need me to tell you how to do an extreme close-up of like a human being crying, I've got your back. But uh, <laughs> like Marvel method, I'd say go wild, but by the end of the page, they need to be here. They're not going to say anything substantial. They're just going to like throw barbs at each other. Just do it. I'll script it later. But with Nathan, I, I there's been there's been so many specific things like that have to happen that I do kind of lay it out and explain it to him. But he really does have a good sense of storytelling. And he has actually a couple times suggested things that really pump up the jokes or make the action a little more clear. Uh, so I really want to respect them and let them have fun with it. So I feel like I, I give enough. Although I should look at other people's Marvel scripts and, and compare myself. But I think I'm nice. I think I'm nice enough to work with. I just feel bad because I make him draw insane stuff. Yeah, but he's great. Yeah. And so he's going to do it. It's yeah. going to be amazing. Yeah, I feel like artists love that stuff being given so free it's reign. It's not like, okay, I need a 300-person crowd scene yeah. every page. <laughs> yeah, and that's why I lay it out to just know, like, oh, like, oh, this is going to take you a while. Because right. Robert Gill was like, oh, I love drawing insane action sequences. I love drawing robots and stuff. So I was like, well, Sentinel fight scene, six active characters, one's on a motorcycle, you got to draw him up. Like it, but he loved it, but he hated it, but he loved it, but he hated it. Because like, <laughs> it was super cool, but he's also got to like get so many of these done a week because the book did not miss any ship dates. Uh, Cena, thank you for coming on This Week at Marvel again. Thank you. Yeah, You're the course, best. Thank you. I'm super happy to be me, super happy to be here, and super happy to know you. Big thanks to Cena Grace. Check him out on the social medias and all those good places. Uh, our question of the week is, who would you rather have as a teacher? Iceman or Emma Frost? Jamie, what do you think? Oh, man. After hearing all about Emma Frost, I'm pretty sure she'd be a hard teacher, She'd, but she'd want you to do your best. She'd be one of those tough teachers where you look back in 10 years and go, oh, she only wanted me to like challenge myself. Iceman, I just think, would be like the awesome, funny teacher who's really encouraging. I'm torn on this because mm. they both have their benefits. I'm going to have to Mull this one over. Okay. Yeah. I think I would go with Emma, but I do think it's a tough one. I was coming, I was like, you know, that's a good question. Maybe let's see what people think. So you can tweet your answers using This Week in Marvel as your hashtag and email them to twimpodcast at marvel.com or send a message to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash This Week in Marvel. Let us know who'd you rather have as a teacher, Iceman or Emma Frost. And feel free to give shout outs to your favorite teachers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I like that. All right, it is now time for our community section. We've got some tweets in here. First is from Chris Berseth saying, digging the latest twim, but wondering if you have any recommendations for good documentaries on the history of comics, specifically Marvel. There are some third-party documentaries, things that we have not produced, and I don't know that we officially sanctioned. They're out there. Uh, but if you like documentaries... And we also like to, you know, provide a little bit of a documentary feel in some of our discussions and the content on Marvel.com. So hopefully we can provide some of that stuff for you, Chris. Yeah, we're like the Ed Burns. You just can't see us. Not Ed Burns. Ken Burns. We're like the Ken Burns. Nope, we're Ed no. Burns. Ed Burns. We're going with it. Ed Burns. That 90s nice, actor? That nice Long Island boy yeah. who, from Valley Stream who made the Brothers McMullen. That's the one. That's the one. Married to Christy Turlington. Uh-oh. Raph A.B. says, watching the Karen Page-centric episode of Marvel's Daredevil, it's heartbreaking. Deborah Ann Wall is exceptional. T 
totally agree. I was sold on Deborah Ann Wall as Karen Page a long time ago, but this season killed it. That girl killed it. So good. That episode was great. Yeah, but we have to mention Raph's other tweet. I have always loved Michael Jackson's Thriller. This parody by the Marvel team is awesome. Marvel superheroes What the Thriller-er is on YouTube. You can find it. I watched it. I loved it. I retweeted it. Brilliant. It is one of my favorites. It's so good. We got Stan Lee to do a voiceover for it. The he, Vincent Price voiceover. Yeah, it's lots of fun. Brilliant. Jiggy Cruz says, Hi, Jamie Scarily. That was my Halloween name. First of all, thank you for giving me a shout-out at the last twam. I honestly got giddy. I'm mentioning you again. Get giddy again. And he also tweets, So the scariest moment for me in Marvel history was seeing this panel in Amazing Spider-Man's Sin's Past. I still shudder at this panel, and it's something I cannot unsee. It is a comic of much debate among many fans, but oh, it is definitely... I uh, know which one you're talking yeah, about it, now, it is yes. definitely one that is disturbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and yeah, I see what you're doing, Jiggy. Yeah. I agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, last one in here is from Amanda, and Amanda says, My answer to the question of the week is my new favorite series, Journey into Mystery. There is a great prose story about a witch that I think Jamie Feverly would love. I love reading these creepy stories, especially at this time of the year. Thank you, Amanda. I love a witchy tale. Which issue were you talking about, Amanda? Oh. And with that, we're wrapped. <laughs> Good way to go out on this. Yes. Thank you all for listening, all the tweets and the, the stuff. Send them our way. We like hearing from you guys. We'll be back with another episode next week. I'm Ryan. And I'm Jamie. And this is Marvel. Your universe. Your universe.